giving your church this place to meet together. What a beautiful place to gather and worship. And uh, what I have noticed is the pews are much more comfortable than the chairs. That means I can preach longer. So that's great. I want to share something with you that God has really blessed us with in the last month. We have uh, had two people in our church that have had the COVID virus to the point of being in the hospital in very serious condition. Uh, one of them was our brother Andy, who's a deacon in our church, and he, he literally um, got to a point that we were not sure he was coming out. We actually had talked about it among some of our leaders in our church and were very concerned that his condition was worsening and things weren't looking very good at all. And uh, we committed a Wednesday night to pray specifically for him and uh, made some contact through some contacts at the hospital to ask if they could get him ivermectin and a high dose of vitamin C, and they did. This is Lexington Hospital, by the way. Within a matter of a day, he had turned uh, dramatically and was making progress in the right direction. And uh, the next one was a lady in our church who happens to be a deacon's wife. I don't know what it is about her deacons, but she had contracted the COVID virus and she waited too long. She could have addressed it early and she, she thought she was going to be okay. And her husband got through it pretty rapidly and she thought she would be the same. And hers got in really bad shape. We ended up sending her up to Lawrence County doctor. That was uh, one of the ones that if you ever saw this on the TV, there was a, it was streamed live. There was a Senate panel committee hearing on the medical use of ivermectin and other drugs um, in Columbia. And one of these doctors was there. And so we sent her there that morning in hopes that maybe she would be able to get some help. Well, immediately when she showed up there, the doctor said, I cannot help you. Your, your oxygen's way too low. It was in the 60s, 69 in fact, which is critical. They called an ambulance right away ended up taking her to Lawrence County Hospital. Then from there, we had to get her taken to Lexington. She got in serious condition so much again that we thought we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen. We did everything we could to keep her off the ventilator to hold as far as we could on that. The Lord enabled me to talk to the nurse specifically. Again, I asked about ivermectin and some of the other important vitamins that they said they had already started giving her after they'd given her the remdesivir, which was causing trouble. But she had to go on the ventilator. And everybody has heard, I'm sure you have, that once you go on the ventilator, there's a good possibility you won't come off. A lot of people have died on the ventilator. And uh, sadly, we were really concerned for her. But we prayed. And again, we committed a Wednesday night to pray for her. And God has answered prayer. She was only on the ventilator for two days, which the medical staff at Lexington was absolutely astounded. They were like, we just haven't seen people come off the ventilator this fast. And so within the third day after her being put on the ventilator and then getting off the second day. And then the third day, she was calling me on the phone. That's just how much of a dramatic turnaround she had been given. I give the Lord the credit for all of this. And we do thank God for the good doctors that were there to help her through those days. But God has been gracious to us as a church. And same here at this church. We're thanking God that he has done the same. So, But continue to pray for her. Her name is Priscilla. She's in the hospital still, but she's doing well. And we're praying that she will be able to get out within a couple of days and even skip therapy. She's doing so well. So very good. Okay, so today we're going to turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
I told our church that we were going to be starting 2 Thessalonians uh, next week, in fact. And today I wanted to share a message that I thought would be important for our church. And I think it's important for all of us here to hear too. In fact, if I could herald this from the housetops everywhere, I would. Because I think the church is facing some very critical times. I think the next few years are going to be some of the most difficult times that we've ever faced as a church in America. And I'm not the only one saying that. In fact, I would be the first to tell you that I never have come up with that on my own. I see things. I read things. I know things are not looking promising as far as the future is concerned for the church, as far as its persecution. But I also know that there are many, many other godly men who have looked into this and have said the same thing. And they know that we're headed into some difficult times. All of us are as believers, as confessing Christ. So let me read this text and then we'll look at it together. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one through nine, the word of God says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of the faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most famous quotes attributed to Martin Luther is the battle quote. A lot of people believe that he said it, but really it probably was a paraphrase of a number of statements that he had made. It actually comes from a fictional novel that was based on real characters and events during the time of Martin Luther. The one that is quoted to have said it in the fictional novel is a man by the name of Fritz in 1526. You'll be familiar with this quote. You have probably heard it before. The quote goes, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point, which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However, boldly, I may be professing Christianity where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and a disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. In the context of the actual story, there's another statement there that I thought was just as profound. It says, and I quote, if the truth which is assailed in any age is tested, it is tested by our fidelity. It is to confess that we are called and not merely to profess. And I'm afraid that many of the pulpits in America are those that are actually professing Christ and not confessing Christ. There's a time that we live in right now that is unlike any other time in the history of the church where we are facing an attack from a very capable and subtle enemy. While the battle rages outside the church and frankly inside the church, there are many in the church that are just comfortable with their pink lemonade and their sugar cookies and are kicking back in their theater chairs with their lattes. The church in America is the Laodicean church. It is a church that is saturated with lukewarmness, 
And it makes Jesus sick. There's a lot of sermonizing, but very little preaching with authority and conviction. There's a lot of series-driven messages, but very little exposition. There's a lot of practical wit and discussion, but very little foundational teaching. And we're facing some of the most critical times in the history of the church. It will test the church like no other time. Yet at the same time, the pulpits are weak, compromised, non-confrontive, and cowardice. Where, where are the men? Where are the men of God? Where are the ones who would preach the truth at all costs? Where are the churches that would be willing to preach the truth and the whole counsel of God, regardless of the attendance? Where are the pulpits that exposit the word of God so that you can hear a clear word from God and not stories of men? The Apostle Paul warned of this. He talked about it in his last letter to Timothy. If you could turn there with me, I'll show you a few things about what Paul said. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And he's telling them in the last days that these difficult times will come. The last days started at the time of the ascension of Christ. We've been in the last days now for nearly 2,000 years. But the last days have perilous times, according to the words of the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy 3.1, listen to these words. Paul says, but I know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. The word perilous is actually a word that means difficult to deal with. It also has the idea of violent or dangerous. It's translated one other time in Matthew 8.28. And it's used there to describe fierce demonic activity. The word fierce is the word translated there for perilous. Other lexicons translate the word and give definition to it as evil, hard, formidable, injurious, harsh, cruel, hard to bear, painful, grievous, wild, and savage. It's used two times in the New Testament, the passage we're reading, and then also Matthew 8. It's used by Josephus 173 times. He likes that word. Perilous. But what he's telling us is that these times that are coming are going to be very dangerous, very difficult, very painful times that the church will face. The word times is not the Greek word chronos, which we normally see to refer to chronological time. It's the word kairos, which refers to a season or an epic or an event. And the idea is that it's not going to be bad all the time all the time of the church history, but there are going to be seasons in the church's life and history that are going to be very, very difficult. It says that that time will come. The word will come means to take place or to be at hand or to arrive. The idea is that you'll be going along in somewhat of a peaceful time in the church, a prosperous time for the church, and then things will turn for the worse. And that's where we are today. It is turned. It is turned for the worse. You read a little further in 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, in verse 3 and following, Paul says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, 
and be turned aside to fables. And it's critical whenever you read this text, not just to point out the fact that there are going to be those that are going to rise up that are false teachers and there will be many who will listen to them, but you need to note who the word they refers to. In verse 3 when it says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We need to ask the question, who are the they? Who's he talking about? Is he talking about the church? Is he talking about those outside the church? Or is he talking about some of both? I think if you were to back up to the context, you'll begin to see what Paul has in mind. Back up to chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. He's talking about there, the servant of the Lord or the pastor is to be the one who in humility, verse 25, corrects those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And that, verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive to him by his will. Chapter 3, again, says, I know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves. Men is the word anthropos. It means mankind. Men in general, men and women, will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Chapter 3, verse 7 says that these men are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men who are of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. Verse 9 says, but they will progress no further. Their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Then even in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, and evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Later in the same book, in chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to be watchful, be alert, watch all things, endure afflictions, and then do the work of the evangelist. Which is interesting that he says that within that context because Timothy was a pastor at the church at Ephesus, but he's called to do the work of the evangelist. And the reason why is because the they there that he's talking about are the ones who are in opposition They are the ones who do not know the truth. They are the ones that have been taken captive by the devil. They are the ones that are the men who are lovers of themselves and lovers of money, as the list goes on. They are the ones who are learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They are the ones that resist the truth and are men of corrupt mind. They are the ones that are the evil men and imposters that will grow worse and worse. And the reason why this is, is the reason why that Paul said to Timothy, correct those who are in opposition. Do the work of the evangelist and preach the word in chapter four, verse two. And all of this is to be done for a reason. It's all to be done for the reason that perhaps, as we read earlier, that God will grant them repentance so that they may come to the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. So whenever you put all of that together, you find out that what Paul's talking about here in chapter four, verse three, when they will not endure sound doctrine, that they actually refers to those that are lost. Those that don't know the Lord, those that are deniers of Christ, deniers of the truth. Now, they may be in the church building, but they don't know the Lord. They are the ones who refuse the truth. They are opposers of the truth. And it says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And I believe also that Paul has in mind not only those that might be in the church that are lost, 
but also those outside the church, in the culture. The word endure, by the way, a very interesting word. It has the idea of tolerating something or bearing with, or one lexicon says to put up with. And so the point is, is that the culture, the people who are lost, who oppose the truth, and those that are even in the building, if you will, of the church, but not in the true body, they will not put up with the truth. And the truth he's talking about is the sound doctrine. That's critical that you understand what he's talking about. Sound doctrine is not, as so many often just think, that it's just Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not just the gospel. It's much more than that. In fact, sound doctrine, biblically speaking, as you read other passages, specifically Titus, defines sound doctrine as anything to do with God and salvation, anything to do with heaven and hell, anything to do with holiness and the habits of life, anything to do with sin and sexuality, anything to do with men and women or marriage or family. All of those things are sound doctrine. The word sound comes from the Greek word we get hygiene from, which means healthy or clean. It promotes health is the idea. So the teaching that is given to us in the Bible is that which is sound, healthy doctrine. And it relates to every facet of life. And he's telling us that the time is coming and there will be epics of time. There will be seasons of time when in fact those who oppose the truth will not tolerate it. They will not tolerate it at all. In the Bible and the teaching about sound doctrine within the Christian church and even the faithful pulpits in America are in direct opposition to our culture. Direct opposition. And frankly, and sadly so, they are directly in opposition to the liberal bits within evangelicalism today. The world and many within evangelicalism will not put up with sound doctrine. They're okay with church growth methods. They're okay with series-driven therapeutic messages. They're okay with messages that are somewhat benign but not confrontive. They're okay with non-convictional messages. Just don't give me all of that detailed doctrine stuff. I don't want any of that. Don't clearly define the roles of men and women. Don't clearly define the roles of the church. Don't clearly define what holiness really is. We can tolerate different views of sexuality. All of that's okay. But in fact, if you preach what the truth says, it's in direct opposition to all of that. Direct opposition. But many of the churches today, sadly in America are willing to compromise on creation and allow evolution in some form. Call it theistic evolution. They compromise on Christianity and allow ecumenism. They compromise on hell and allow either annihilationism or universalism. They compromise on holiness and allow homosexuality within the bounds of evangelicalism. They compromise on men and women and allow transsexuality. They compromise on redefining what marriage and the family is and allow for cohabitation, fornication, and abortion. We are all in that season now. That's where we are. It literally has saturated the churches. There are many within the pulpits of America that are not willing to deal with these issues. And as a result, many in the pews don't understand what the Bible says regarding it. And it's created a very weak and very, very vulnerable group of people in the church. That's why I say it is one of the most difficult and dangerous times that the church has been in in a very, very long time. In some cases, it may be the worst of times for the church. 
Because some of this is extraordinarily subtle. And it comes in in a Trojan horse. And it looks like it's evangelical. And it looks like it's truthful. And it looks like it's beneficial. But in many ways, it is not. And it's divisive and destructive. Even as I speak this today, there are churches that are dealing with this very problem. They are faithful ministries. And they've already been targeted. They have been deplatformed. Whether it be on YouTube or whether it be Facebook. There are those who also have been removed from selling their products on Amazon because they teach sound doctrine. And it's different. It's opposite of what the world says. And this will get worse. It will get worse. Those who support the deplatforming of churches and biblical doctrine are emboldened by their own sin and the support they have for it. And sadly, they are empowered by the silence of the church. There's a large population of people, both in the political world and American culture, and also in the Baptist and Presbyterian denominations that would love that faithful churches that preach the doctrines of the Word of God and hold to these truths, they would be very comfortable if the faithful churches just went away. If they would just shut their doors and stop preaching. And to be clear, there are thousands of churches and pulpits that never address these issues. Never. They're happy to have you as long as you keep your mouth shut. And sadly, within the evangelical world, there are many who will oblige. I had the opportunity in the last conference at G3 to talk to Rich, who's one of the men that helps James White out at Alpha and Omega Ministries. And I was talking to him and thanking him for the really the hyper accuracy that they've had in the last five years of forecasting where the church would be and what we would be facing dealing with critical race, social justice, the LGBTQ agenda, and the rising tide of the accusations of hate speech. They've been accurate about this. And I was just amazed at that. But whenever I talked to Rich about that, he said, listen, I cannot take credit for that. We cannot take credit for that. Because we received a phone call from Michael O'Fallon from Sovereign Nations And he's the reason why we knew this. So it just so happens that I had listened to Michael O'Fallon on a couple of occasions on the social justice issues. And I found him very extremely intelligent and insightful. In fact, many times whenever I listen to him, I have to listen to him with a dictionary in hand. But whenever he was at the conference, I had a chance to just corner him for a few moments and tell him again that I appreciated his insights into where the church is headed and what we're facing And the dangers that we're in for. And he turned to me and he startled me with what he said. He pointed his finger at me, looked very intently into my eyes. And he said this, basically what you have seen right now is nothing with what's coming down the path for the church. He told me that within within the next 10 years, it will cost me everything. Which that means that every faithful man of God, every faithful church is going to be persecuted to the extent that they're going to be literally tried to be taken out of existence. How and what form that will take, only God knows. But he was very clear that it's coming, for sure. It reminds me of an event nearly 130 years ago in London when Charles Haddon Spurgeon was facing one of the most difficult times in his ministry. It was four years before he died. He died at the age of 57. I turned 57 in December. His wife was 60 years old whenever he died. My wife turned 60 in September. 
My initials are CS. And so are his. I don't in any way put myself where Spurgeon is, but I'll tell you the truth. It is sobering to realize that many believe that the controversy that Spurgeon dealt with in the last few years of his life led to his death. The stress of what happened was enormous in his life. I know there were other issues. He had health issues, yes. And there was the issue whenever there was the claim of fire that so many ran out of the church and some were trampled and killed as a result of that. He never fully got over that. But one of the things that really struck him hard was the downgrade controversy. Ian Murray wrote a book called The Forgotten Spurgeon that addresses the downgrade controversy. It's called The Forgotten Spurgeon because so many love Spurgeon. They, the, the Charismatics love Spurgeon. The non-Charismatics love Spurgeon. The Arminians love Spurgeon. And the Calvinists love Spurgeon. But most people love an edited Spurgeon. They don't want everything that Spurgeon says or all the stands that he took. And so it's called the forgotten Spurgeon because the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon was surrounded by controversy because he was always one that was the lion that would confront the truth. He would speak out. He would address it from a biblical perspective. If not speaking, he would write about it. And that time in his life, whenever he was dealing with the continued influence of modernism and liberalism coming to the churches, he was concerned about it. And he addressed it in a very forceful manner. But instead of it going the opposite direction, it actually influenced the churches and destroyed many of them. He saw that modernism and liberalism coming into the churches was putting the churches on what he called the downgrade. And that if you got on the downgrade, there was little hope of return or correction. What he meant by that is that there is the truth and faithfulness to the truth is like standing on the top of a very, very steep pinnacle. And if you were to go left or right, it's easily to slip off and start down the downgrade. And you would, grow, you would go at breakneck speed and there was little hope of recovery at all. Spurgeon knew that the direction of the church wasn't, if it wasn't corrected and put on what he called the upline, it would be destroyed. He confronted it with persistent courage he brought it out at the Baptist Union on a number of occasions. And how did they respond? They censured him, voted against him. And as a result, he left the Baptist Union. And the greatest threat that is recorded for us is not that it was modernism or liberalism that really is what destroyed the churches, but rather the fact that there were many of the pastors of the Baptist Union that in secrecy supported what Spurgeon said, but were not courageous enough to stand up with him. And as a result, what he forecasted to take place in the churches happened. Many of the denominations of that day and still today have been affected by it. They have been destroyed. And the pews of many of the churches in England and London were emptied. And even to this day, some of the churches have become mosques. It's a sad, sad reality of what happens whenever you don't deal with error that is coming into your church and you allow it to happen because of the cowardice of those that are in the pulpit that are unwilling to deal with it. His prediction was true. And it happened exactly as he said. And brothers and sisters, I'll tell you this. We are there today. We are, as a whole evangelical church community, on the downgrade. The churches are going down this path at breakneck speed. And it's fueled and propelled not just by gravity 
but it's propelled by a number of things. It's been given a push, if you will, on this downgrade. Social justice is one of them. Critical race theory is another. The decentralization of the pulpit and ministry in the local church is another. It's been fueled by the de-emphasis of the assembly of God's people in corporate worship. It's also been fueled by the degradation of the priority of the Lord's Supper. There are churches, in fact, that will have the Lord's Supper, yes, but they'll place it on tables on the end of the pews along the wall and you get your elements as you leave. That's the Lord's Supper. It also has been fueled by the influence and adoption of the world's philosophy on human sexuality. It's been fueled by the redefining of the role of women in the church. It's been redefined by the removal of prayer and scripture reading from public worship. It's been fueled by the silence of the church on the sins of the culture, such as abortion, euthanasia, fornication, homosexuality, and transgenderism. It's been fueled by the redefining of the roles of men and women in marriage and family. It's been fueled by the capitulation of the vast majority nearly 90% of the families in evangelical churches to surrender their children to government schools so that the secular humanist philosophy can fill the minds of their children. It's also been fueled by the rapidly declining belief in the total sufficiency of the Bible. And it's also been fueled by the emphasis of the needs of man in worship rather than the glory of God in worship. And the list could go on and on. I could share with you many, many more. But the point is, is that in this context, this is not the time to be asleep. This is not the time to be slumbering as a believer. This is not the time to assume that the society we live in has a Christian worldview because it does not at all. What the country was built on has been systematically destroyed. It's gone. It's over. We are living in a post-constitutional, tyrannical government. And you and I are neck deep in paganism. We are neck deep in it. Full-blown, God-denying, Christ-hating, lawless paganism. Whenever you have a transportation secretary of the United States of America who has married his homosexual partner and then adopts two children and believes he needs to take too much maternity leave... You are in full-blown paganism. Whenever you have a House of Representatives that in defiance of a heartbeat bill in Texas decides it's going to vote and approve the killing of babies for any reason all the way up to birth, you are in godless paganism. And we're not even talking about the changes of a country that's just 50 years ago. Listen, the country is radically different from two years ago. And as it moves so much more rapidly, we look at it now in weeks, how rapidly things are changing and turning away from anything to do with God whatsoever. We need to wake up. We need to wake up and save ourselves and save our own families, save our churches and quit dabbling with the sewer filled mud puddles of secular humanism and protect the families. If you're listening As I even told our church this morning, and if anyone listens to this online and you're attending a local church that does not preach the whole counsel of God or has compromised in the issues I just talked about, you need to get out of that church. Leave. 
Remove your family and place yourself in a church that honors God, honors his word, and preaches the whole counsel of God with authority and conviction. And if you have your children in public schools that are clearly subverting everything that you teach at home and the church, you need to get them out. Don't do what so many are doing and allowing their children to be seduced and taught by the evil system of this world. Hitler knew how to do it. He understood that the way he would gain the world was through the children. So you teach the children. They called them Hitler's youth. And he understood that. And the devil's not asleep. The devil's not idle. He works very, very carefully and 24 hours a day to make sure that the children of this generation are influenced by a godless philosophy. And we need to wake up. Some have said to me, well, pastor, surely it's not that bad. Surely it's not. Really? But I told someone not too long ago, I said, just down the road from where I live at an elementary school, there are second grade children being taught some of the most sexually explicit material that I would not even talk to anybody who's an adult in a church without being embarrassed. But second grade children are being taught this. And you realize that in the public schools in America today, that there is sexually explicit material in the libraries that teach pedophilia, homosexuality with pictures. And then we will send our daughters to schools where most of the young men have smartphones that are looking at pornography on a regular basis. This is not a joke. This is true. This is real. I sit on the other side of the desk and listen to this stuff. I hear this firsthand. It's a real problem. It's a real problem that families in the evangelical church do not understand and do not take seriously. It's like what Vody Bauckham said many years ago now when he was talking about delivering your children over to Caesar. And he was talking about that 90% of evangelicals do the same thing. He said it's hard to get any group of evangelicals to do the same thing. But in this context, 90% of evangelical families put their children in government schools to be taught godless philosophy. And Vody Bauckham said on one occasion, when you give your children to Caesar, don't be surprised when they come out Romans. And I know that there's good people in the public school. Don't misunderstand me. I know there's Christians there. I know there's people who have tried their best to be a light and an influence and salt in that context. But you do need to understand that the, the, the information and the literature comes from the devil. And you have no control over that. You can't control that. And it has to be taught because it's part of the system. And whenever someone does this, they're playing Russian roulette with their children's mind and their children's soul. And this time, the gun does not have five empty slots and one bullet. It has five bullets and one empty slot. One of the most troubling signs I see in the church beyond all of this that I've already mentioned is the fact that Christians have their heads in the sand. You will be absolutely surprised. Maybe you wouldn't, but there's plenty who would be that there are many Christians within evangelical churches that have no clue what's going on at all. They don't listen to it. They don't read about it. They don't talk about it. Their pulpits don't talk about it. No one says anything about it. They go on about their daily activities as if everything is fine. I've seen video after video of mothers standing before school boards 
and fighting for the purity of the teaching in the school classroom and fighting to remove perversion from the classroom and fighting to remove critical race theory and even fighting to remove the potential of men coming into the restrooms of women with dresses on. And my question is this, where are the men? Where are the fathers? Where are they at? Why does it seem like it's always the women who are standing there fighting on behalf of the purity of the children in the public school system and the fathers have nothing to say? Sadly, even the Christians have very little to say. Whenever they should be the ones speaking out the loudest, even if they don't have their children there, it is affecting the culture. It's destroying the culture. Every single nation that has risen on the scene and has found itself where we are right now in America has been destroyed. There's no doubt about that. History makes it very, very clear. I even wonder today if Nero was around, would he find any Christians to burn? Would it be clear enough that their testimonies were that strong that he would say, yeah, I'll burn him. Or perhaps maybe he couldn't even find any Christians he could wrap in animal skins and send off to be destroyed and torn apart for entertainment. I wonder just how hard it would be to find a Christian that committed that Nero would want to get rid of them. Today, a lot of the people in the Christian church believe that their witness is based upon their bumper sticker of a fish. And that's about as far as it goes. But whenever opportunity comes to speak out on behalf of the things that we know the Bible has said is clear on, we don't say anything. We don't say anything. We're afraid we're going to lose our job. We're afraid we're going to lose our standing. We're afraid we're going to lose our friends. We're afraid we're going to lose our families. And we just keep our mouths shut. Most Christians' testimony is not clear enough for the world to know that they are Christians. We need to wake up. We need to wake up. Be alert. Be sober-minded. The days are evil, and they continue to get worse. God often knew that we needed that kind of prodding because we have a tendency to nod off, don't we? We have a tendency to get comfortable where we are and We think everything's okay. We don't have to worry about anything. Things are fine where we are. We slumber, we sleep, we fold our hands. But God tells us we need to be alert. We need to be alert. There are literally hundreds of verses throughout the Old and the New Testament that call on you and I to be watchful and alert. I'll share a few of them with you. Matthew 24, 42 says, Watch therefore... For you do not know the hour of your Lord's coming. Matthew 25, 13 says, Watch therefore, for you do not know the day nor the hour of the Son of Man's coming. Mark 13, 35 says, Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. Mark 14, 23, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, finds watching. Luke 12, 40 says, therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So be watching. Luke 21, 36, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape the things that are coming. You say, well, all of those are about the second coming. Yes, they are. But there's plenty more that aren't about the second coming. Like Acts chapter 20, verse 31, when Paul told the elders at Ephesus, 
He concludes his discussion with them and says, therefore, watch. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong. Ephesians 6, 18, the closing of the believer's armor says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance. Colossians 4, 2 says, we are to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant. Same idea of being watchful. 2 Timothy 4, 5, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions. 1 Peter 4, 7, but to this end, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't even end there. It goes on in Revelation 3, 2, it says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. And you have verses like 1 Peter 1, 13, therefore gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. These verses are all through the scripture. Listen to Romans 13, 11. And do this, knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Night is far spent and day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Our passage I have before us today in 1 Thessalonians is one of many that I could have picked to address the issue of being alert and sober in the day in which we live. But I'm going to point out a couple of things that I think are important that are foundational for our understanding of it. So go back with me if you can to 1 Thessalonians 5. There's much I could say about this text that we won't today because we want to really focus in on the middle of the text that talks about being alert and not sleeping. But let me just give you a couple of words, first of all. And the first would be what I call encouragement. Encouragement, which is the Apostle Paul's word to the Thessalonian Christians, beginning in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, what is he talking about? Well, in the context, he's talking about the return of Christ. Because in chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. But he then goes on to talk about the return of the Lord that would take those that have already fallen asleep or died in Christ and that he would resurrect them first and then snatch away those that are alive and remain. So he's talking about the return of Christ. But here in this context, he introduces something else. It is the return of Christ, but there's something about the return of Christ. It's called the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So in verse one, he says, concerning the times and the seasons. Times is the Greek word chronos, means chronological, sequential time. Then you have kairos, which is seasonal time, or it is an epic or an event. And what Paul is saying is this. At one time, Paul had given them a detailed eschatology. In fact, I really wish Paul would have given us more than what he gives us in First and Second Thessalonians, especially chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. Because there's a lot that he says here that we don't have a whole lot of information on. He says, you guys know what is restraining, but he doesn't tell us what it is. I wish he would have. But apparently, in this text, he says, concerning these chronological events, times, and the events that make up that time, seasons, he says, you have no need that I should write to you. 
because he's already taught them these things. But he's going to remind them of some things. And point being, in verse 2, he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. This is a eschatological event. This is something in the future that's going to happen whenever the Lord returns in judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of God's vengeance. It's used, in fact, in the Old Testament many times to refer to historical events of God's judgment. It's called the day of the Lord. And in Isaiah chapter 13, he gives us a little bit of a description of the day of the Lord. He says in chapter 13, verse 6 of Isaiah, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will fail and melt. And they will be afraid. Pains and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth and will be amazed at one another and their faces will be like flames. So nothing pretty about that day at all. Joel chapter one, verse 15 says, alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the almighty. Amos chapter five, verse 20 says, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark? And no brightness in it. Joel 2.11 says the strong one, the strong rather, is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? We even have Peter refer to this same kind of day, the day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.10 says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So this is not a spring day. This is not a beautiful fall day. This is a day of judgment. This is the day of fire. This is the day of God bringing judgment on all of humanity that has rejected him. So what Paul says is, regarding that day, you have no need that I should write to you because you perfectly know this. You already know this very explicitly, that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, don't go back to the old movie, The Thief in the Night, because that's not what he's talking about. He's just talking about suddenly, unexpectedly, to the world, it will come as a thief in the night. Verse 3 says, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, the they there refers to the world. The world of lost people who have rejected Christ and they will say peace and safety. This is a really amazing phrase. Again, it's one of those things that we don't have a whole lot of information on because Paul didn't tell us. It could simply be that what he means is that there's going to be a false sense of security among the world. That they're going to think everything's fine. Everything's okay. Or it could also imply, and I, I don't want to read into it, but it may have the idea that those that bother the world are no longer a problem. Like, for instance, the church. Because you and I are the ones that are the salt. We are the ones that speak up. At least we're supposed to. We are the ones who agitate the world. We're the ones that stand outside the abortion clinics and say, thou shalt not murder. We're the ones that say that kind of lifestyle is a sin. But whenever the church is no longer speaking, or perhaps maybe... Whenever the church is no longer allowed to speak because it's in jail or underground, then perhaps maybe they'll think everything's fine. We don't have to deal with those people anymore. 
That might, that might be what Paul has in mind, but I might be stretching it a bit. But the point is simply this, is that clearly the world thinks everything's okay and they have no worry of God. They're not worried about God. They could care less about this idea of a God that would come and judge the world. They are in peace and some type of security at least. But then Paul reminds us, this is only temporary. In verse 3 he says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Well, how do labor pains come, come upon a pregnant woman? Well, they show up suddenly. One day you're fine, the next day you've got them, right? Isn't that the way it works? And as we also know that whenever you get closer to the birth, the pains get closer together and more intense. Too often I can remember when I used to drive ambulances and work in the back with the pregnant women, I would say, Lord, please, God, keep those, those pains further apart, contractions further apart, because I don't want to deal with this in the back of this ambulance. I understood that. And the point was, I believe that what Paul has in mind is a lot of what Jesus even talked about. In fact, Paul gets a lot of his words from Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The vocabulary is used in those two chapters. He uses labor pains here to refer to the time that the judgment of God will come suddenly, unexpectedly, and as it comes, it will not be as bad to begin with, but as it get closer to the event of the arrival of Christ, it will be indeed worse, much worse. It will come suddenly. It's even used over this word suddenly or unexpectedly is used over in uh, Luke 21, verse 34, that says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life and the day come upon you unexpectedly. That's the idea behind that. So he says, labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman. We'll describe the way the day of the Lord comes, but look at verse three again. It says, they will not escape. The word not is two words in the Greek, ou and may, which is a double negative, which is a way of saying emphatically, there's no possible escape. No way out of this. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. You will be judged when Jesus comes and destruction will come upon them. Destruction will come. You say, well, how in the world is any of that encouragement? Well, it's encouragement because of verse four. Look at it. After he gives them the horrible bad news of what's coming on the world, he says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, what day? The day of the Lord would overtake you as a thief. You were all sons of the light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And what he's telling us is this, you are exempt from this day. The world is going to be caught off guard. They're not going to be prepared. It's going to catch them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. But you are not of that darkness. You will not be overtaken as a thief. Why? Because you know it's coming. You should be prepared. You should be ready. You should acknowledge the fact that the Lord is coming. And when he does come, he's coming to judge. But in verse 5, he says, you are all sons of the light, sons of the day. And we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Now, Paul is using words here that are familiar to us because we see this often referenced to believers, that they're sons of light and we're not of darkness. Darkness referring to evil and lostness and rebellion and all of those things, blindness even. 
But being a son of the light means we have the truth and we have righteousness and we have life in Christ. John chapter 12, verse 36 says, while you are, he's talking to the people that are there with him in John 12 and verse 36. And Jesus says, while you have the light, referring to himself, Jesus being the light, he says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He says, I'm the light. I'm the truth. I'm the way. Believe in me, he says, so that you can become a son of light. Even Paul was told that he would be that one that would give light to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, he says that he would be sent to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. In other words, from lost, blind, dead to life, righteousness, and truth. All of those are what is referenced there. Light refers to life and purity and truth and darkness refers to death and evil and lies. And we all have life and holiness in Christ and we know the truth. I mean, we know where the world's coming from and where the world's going. We know who can save sinners and who will judge sinners. We have all the details. We have all the information. We have a worldview by which we can decipher and distinguish and discern everything in the world with. We're not shocked whenever we see the things happening today. We're not amazed that people could be as evil as they can be because we read it in the Bible. It's clear what happens to a culture whenever they turn away from God and deny him. According to Romans one, God will give them up and give them over to a reprobate mind. So the encouragement that Paul gives them is this. Listen, the day of the Lord is coming, but you're not going to be under that judgment when it shows up. You're sons of light, sons of the day. Then it moves to the exhortation, which is really the meat of what I want to share with you in verse six. Therefore, therefore, based upon what? Based upon what he just told them, that they would not be uh, taken over by the day of the Lord. They would not be under the judgment of the day of the Lord. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now, you might think that's kind of odd. Why would you say something like that? I mean, if you're not going to be judged and you're not going to face the impending doom of the world, then we can just kind of kick back. We can relax. We can get in our lawn chair outside in the backyard. We can drink our glass of tea and just wait for it all to happen. But that's not what he says. He says, I don't want you to sleep. I don't want you to be like others who sleep. I want you to watch and I want you to be sober. Why would he do that? I've heard people say, you know what? I'll just do whatever I want to right now because the Lord's not coming yet. Obviously, there's no, quote, signs of the times. So I can just relax. And whenever the Lord's and it is coming gets close, I'll straighten up my life then. I've heard people say that very thing. The problem is, is that even in this context, the Holy Spirit who wrote this through the Apostle Paul, he would have known that the coming of the Lord was at least 2,000 years into the future. And yet he told these people, knowing that the Lord was not going to come back immediately, that they needed to be alert, be awake, watch, and be sober. And what's the point? The point is simply this. Even though you anticipate the coming of Christ, even though you know that Christ is coming back, even though you may be eager like the Thessalonian Christians were to look forward to the coming of Christ, that does not mean that we should not be alert. We should not be sober. We should not be uh, 
uh, in, in a point where we're not sleeping or slumbering. And the reason why is because we still have a very, very capable enemy. A very capable enemy. If you just kick back and don't worry about your Christian life or your family, your family is going to be a target. And you're going to find out that your life and your family and your church will be a target of the evil one. In 2 Peter 3.12, Peter said these words, that we are looking for and eagerly uh, desiring the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So in other words, Peter says to his audience, I know we should look forward to and we should eagerly desire the coming of Christ and even the judgment that will come that will avenge the enemies, if you will, his enemies. Then verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, that's another way of saying be alert, be sober-minded, be clear, because you need to be ready whenever the Lord does return. Let me show you these words here in verse 6. It's so important to understand what Paul is saying. Verse 6 says that we are not to sleep. Paul has three things in mind here. He says that we should not sleep, we should not what we should watch, and we should be sober. What does he mean by sleep? He says we should not sleep. Now he's not talking about physical sleep. He's not saying you guys can't go home tonight and go to sleep. He's not saying that. He's using this kind of sleep in a metaphorical way. And he's talking about how you and I are, if we are asleep, we are indifferent to our society. We are indifferent to the things around us. If you are asleep, like myself, whenever I'm asleep and I'm in deep sleep, I don't have a clue what's going on around me. I have no idea. People can walk in the room, they can talk, they can do whatever they want to, and I don't know. I'm in my own little dream world, if you will. And so it is whenever we talk about here in a metaphorical way that you and I should not be asleep as Christians, meaning that we should be fully alert and conscious of everything around us. And I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of Christians that are asleep. A lot of them are asleep. I went to Florida just recently and I was talking to some of my own personal family members down there. and They attend a very large Southern Baptist church in that area. And I was mentioning some of the things that the Southern Baptists are dealing with, even the critical race, social justice stuff. I was talking about the influence of some of these other immoral issues coming into the churches, and they had no clue, none at all. Had no clue that any of that was going on at all. And this is not just isolated in that one church. It is everywhere. There are many, many people who do not know they are fully asleep. And not aware of the surroundings of what's going on. The Bible's calling on us here not to be asleep. We need to be fully conscious of all that is around us. Fully conscious of our church. Fully conscious of our life. Fully conscious of our family. Fully conscious of what's going on in the government. Fully conscious of what's happening in the culture. You say, well, that's too much, Pastor. Listen, there's plenty of ways to do that. You don't want to find your head in the sand When all the evil comes down on top of you, you want to be prepared and ready. It seems like more and more Christians are in a dream world. They're in a dream world. And we need to wake up. We need to wake up as churches. So the first point he says is that we should not sleep. Secondly, we should watch. The word watch here doesn't have the idea of looking at something like you would watch TV or watch your children play. 
He's not talking about that. The word watch means to stay awake or to be vigilant. So it's one thing not to sleep, but now he's telling, I want you to stay awake and stay awake all the time. It's a present tense verb. Not, there's no time to be asleep. There's no time to be unalert. There's no time to be without vigilance. He doesn't want you just to be awake. He wants you to stay awake all the time. There's no opportunity for a believer to get slack in this area at all because that's whenever the enemy looks for the opportunity. We should always be fully aware of what's going around us at all times. And it takes time. It takes effort. It takes, sometimes it's very, very uh, tiring to go through that kind of stuff on a daily basis to make sure you are aware of what's happening around you. As far as a church or as a pastor in your culture and your government and schools and family and friends, all of those things. And to understand that there's the attempt by the evil one to destroy us by even what we believe and what we think. Like, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 10, it talks about that our weapons are not carnal or fleshly or physical. Rather, they are casting down arguments and anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and that we are to bring every thought into captivity. The point is, is that the battlefield is what we understand, what we know, what we believe, what we read. That's so, so very important. One last word he gives to us here is sober. We're not to be asleep, but we're to be fully awake. And then he says we're to be sober. Now, this word translated sober, napho, is a word that does have the idea of abstaining from wine. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not saying that you Thessalonian Christians are drunk all the time, so be sober. He's not saying that. He's talking about sobriety in the sense of clarity of mind. Or another way of looking at it is this. You are uninfluenced. Whenever someone has alcohol in them, they are influenced by that alcohol. They are controlled by that alcohol. And whenever you talk about someone being sober-minded, the idea is is that they are uninfluenced by external or even internal things. They're not allowing the world to influence them, the godless culture to influence them, or the ideology of the world to influence them. Rather, they're letting the Bible and the Word of God and the church and the Spirit of God influence them. That's why Peter said in chapter 1, verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. What that means is bring up all the loose ends. Tie them up and have clarity of thought, clarity of mind, and do not be influenced. We are not to be, as Romans 12 says, conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the what? The renewing of our minds. First Peter chapter five, listen to this. He uses both words here in this text that Paul's referred to. First Peter five, eight says, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Why should we be alert in the sense of clarity of mind, uninfluenced by the world? Why should we be vigilant in the sense of constantly staying awake and alert? Because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion and uses again, present tense verbs, meaning that this is an ongoing thing. The devil doesn't go home and take a nap. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. Neither can we. We cannot. We must be awake at all times. One of the reasons why he reminds us of how important it is to be like this is verse 7. Look at it. Verse 7 says, for those who sleep, sleep at the night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at the night. What does he mean by that? Why would he introduce that? 
And all he means is this, is that those who are of the night act like the night. They do what the night brings. He's talking about characteristics here. In other words, these are those that are lost, and the way the lost world acts is always darkness. They always act consistent with what they live in. They live in their sin and in their perpetual darkness. They walk in it. They converse in it. They educate themselves in it. They provide for their families in the darkness. They entertain themselves in the darkness. They're permeated by the darkness. Their philosophy is integrated with the darkness. And their goal is to perpetrate the darkness to the world around us. And their life and their love is filled with darkness. That's the world. That's what he's referring to. So you and I are not to be like that. We're to be awake. Not filled with the darkness. Not consumed with the evil of the world. We must wake up. And the last point I bring to you tonight is this. The escape. The escape. And this is a glorious encouragement because, you know, if all we had from the Bible was, you guys are going to be here. You're stuck here. I hope it works out for you. You know, just hang in there. We have a promise of a future deliverance from this evil world that we live in. And the worse it gets, I think the promise of heaven and the promise of the return of Christ is that much more precious. It has been in the history of the church. Whenever the church has focused on the persecution that it was enduring, it found that the promise of the return of Christ, the promise of the reward with him, the promise of a new life in Christ, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth is what kept them going, kept them enduring, kept them persevering. He uses the word here in this text about the helmet of the hope of salvation. In other words, what protects our mind, what protects our thoughts, what keeps us from discouragement and despondency in this very evil world in which we live is the hope of future salvation. He's not talking about past salvation. These are already saved people. The word salvation here means deliverance. This is the same Greek word soterios. But salvation has three phases. There's the past salvation from sin and hell. There's the present salvation from the sin in your life and sanctification. And then there's the future salvation that comes in the final return of Christ where you are taken to be with him forever in heaven. And that's the salvation he's talking about. It is a hope of that. And that hope is not like we often talk about. We, we hope this will happen or we hope that will happen. And we don't have a clue that it really will. This word translated hope is a word that has the idea of complete anticipation or expectation. In other words, I'm looking forward to it because I know it will happen. He will come. He will deliver us. That's why he says in verse 9, For God did not appoint us, what's the word? To wrath. He's not talking about hell here in this context. He's talking about eschatological wrath. The day of the Lord, the context. He's talking about that we are appointed deliverance, salvation, it says in verse 9, to obtain, obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, which he talks about in chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. With all of that said, what are some practical things we can do other than stay awake, be alert, and also be vigilant? Well, there are five things I would say we could do right now in the culture in which we live, as a church, as a people of God. And they are five peas or a pot of peas. The first is to pray. Always pray. The Bible tells us in Thessalonians that we are to be praying without ceasing. 
In other words, we're always in an attitude of communion with God wherever we are. Whether we're in church or in the car, at home, wherever we are, we're always praying, interacting, talking to the Lord. Praying without ceasing. Praying for strength. Praying for ability to be courageous. Praying for conviction. Praying for God to teach us his word in order to live in a pagan culture. And then secondly, proclaim. This is where the church is weak. Proclaim the gospel to the lost world. Just because we are called by God eventually to escape doesn't mean we are not left here for a reason. We are left here to talk to people about the gospel so that they also can come to know Christ. This is how God has set it up. Romans 10. They will not hear unless someone is sent to them to give them, preach to them the gospel. So we pray and we proclaim. And third, we preach. This goes back to the pastor's responsibility to preach not some of the Bible, but the whole counsel of God. And as I even said to our church this morning, stop with all the therapeutic preaching. Quit preaching self-help. Preach the Bible. Preach the word of God. That's what sanctifies. That's what changes the lives of people. So you pray, you proclaim, you preach, and then you practice. That means you live what you know the Bible says. And that's going to be costly in these days. And it will get worse for your job, for your family, and for your church. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. We do it because God calls on us to do it. And we want to do it to honor him. And then fifth, prepare. We pray, we proclaim, we preach. We practice, we prepare. And what I mean by that, as solemnly as I can say this and as clear as I can say this, you and I as believers need to prepare ourselves for persecution and isolation because it's already happening. It's just a matter of time before it gets right here to Rock Hill, South Carolina. It's coming. So we need to prepare ourselves. We need to get ready for what's coming. We've lived an easy life as a believer. We've had it very, very good. But we're not given any kind of promise from the Bible that we're going to have an exempt persecution card. In fact, if anything, we're promised in the Bible that if we live godly lives in a culture that is a pagan culture, we're going to receive persecution, right? That's what it says. David Wells wrote a number of years ago a book that really helps us to understand. He's been very helpful in doing this, writing on how we've seen the departure of the evangelical church and the growing problems. He wrote these words, Today the evangelical world is bleeding. We have lived off the accumulated capital of those who worked so hard after the post-war years, and we have not renewed it. 51 years ago, he says, Harold John Okinga addressed the National Association of Evangelicals when it was very much in its infancy. Now, this is now 76 years ago, whenever this was actually written and quoted. So 76 years ago, Harold Okinga wrote these words whenever the evangelical community was in its infancy. He spoke of the crisis in the Western civilization and the responsibility of evangelicals and what they had to do. This is one of the quotes that he had. This nation, in its maturity, is passing through a crisis 
which is a meshing Western civilization. Confusion exists on every hand, and we are living in very difficult and bewildering times. But few people realize what tremendous change we are undergoing. The hour has arrived when the people of this nation must think deeply or be damned. We must recognize that we are standing at the crossroads and that there are only two ways that lie open before us. One is the road of the rescue of Western civilization by the re-emphasis on the revival of evangelical Christianity. The other is a return to the dark ages of heathendom, which powerful force is emerging in every phase of our lives today. As I said, David Wells wrote these words in this little booklet in 1995. He quoted someone that spoke those words 76 years ago. And you have to ask yourself the question, how far have we descended from there? All I can say is this, may God have mercy on this nation and revive and reform his church. Let's turn our attention now to the reception of the Lord's table. It is a practice that we have here at this church and that we enjoy because the Lord God himself gave us the Lord's Supper. It is a means by which we are able to remember the death of our Lord on behalf of the people of God. The body and the blood of Christ were given to satisfy the wrath of an eternal God so that you and I could have right relationships with God and be at peace with the Father. And the Bible tells us that whenever we think about the Lord's Supper, that we are to take, think about it in a very serious manner because it is a means by which we confess Christ, but it is also a means by which we purify our own hearts and souls before the Lord by confession of sin. It warns that if you are not a believer, that you should not take the Lord's Supper. So I would tell you this, as Paul did, that if you're not a confessing Christian, if you do not know the Lord as your Savior, even if you're not even sure that you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, I would warn you and encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper. But if you are a Christian here today and you have unrepentant sin in your life, I would encourage you and admonish you in the Lord that you repent. Repent of your sin. Get right with God today. And then take the Lord's Supper. If you deny that, if you say, I'm not going to do that today, you risk the discipline of the Lord, which I would not encourage you risking that at all. So we're going to take a moment and pray, give you an opportunity to pray and prepare your hearts for this as we receive the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are open before you. Our thoughts are open before you. There's nothing that we have in our mind or our heart that is not seen by you. Lord God, I pray that if there's any wicked way in us that we don't even see or know or acknowledge that you would purify our hearts and cleanse us. We acknowledge, Lord God, that you are the only one who can do so. We confess, Lord God, that we have not loved you the way we should. We have not followed you the way we should. There are many times, Lord, when we have not obeyed you the way we should. 
But Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that you grant to us in Christ. You tell us, First John, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And we acknowledge this is true. We believe this to be true. And we thank you for that. Lord, as we come before you at this time, when we celebrate what you have given to us with the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge, Father, that you have given us in Christ a perfect, complete, sufficient sacrifice. That we do not need anything else. We have no need to add any works. We have no need for a perpetual, ongoing sacrifice. No more blood needs to be shed. And Lord God, we thank you that you have given us that in Christ. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for entering into the Holy of Holies. We thank you, Lord God, for Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father, completing his work forever, once and for all. Today, Father, we thank you for this celebration of the Lord's Supper that you gave to us. In Jesus' name, amen.